Hi, I'm Sapan Gai, uh, Chief Commercial Officer of Sovereign Metals. Sovereign Metals is developing the Casilla project in Malawi. Casilla is looking at producing two of the critical raw minerals for uh, for society and for a greener future, one being natural rutile, which is the purest form of titanium, and the other being natural graphite, which feeds into uh, lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles. Sapan, good to see you. Um, we, we're going to try and do something a little bit different today, uh, if you don't mind, which is take advantage of the fact that you've just been to a conference. And I think most investors, when they hear companies have been to conferences, you know, they have a view that it's, it's just a jolly or you know, not much happens at them. So um, I'm going to ask, if you don't mind, to tell us a little bit about what went on recently with the Titanium Summit, which you've just attended. What, what did you go there to try and get out of it and what actually happened? Sure. Uh, yeah, a couple of good questions there. So we attended the, uh, in fact, we were one of the key sponsors for the TIO2 World Summit, which took place uh, last week. All sounds very fancy, but essentially it's um, all, all corporates uh, uh, who have any kind of uh, dealings within the titanium dioxide space. So we went along as obviously having the largest rutile deposit in the world and therefore potentially one of, uh, one of the largest uh, future suppliers of titanium dioxide into, uh, into, into the space. Um, just as a reminder, rutile feeds into three main uh, industries, uh, TiO2 pigments, uh, which is about 60% of the industry. That's a $15 billion um, per annum space. You have your welding, uh, which rutile, which premium rutile feeds into, uh, which is around 30% of, uh, of rutile use and about 10% goes into titanium metal, which is, you know, we're all more, more au fait with the, with, with, with the, the, the actual metal titanium. Um, so this conference was really focused on that 60%, uh, that TIO2. So you had your, your, your pigment producers, uh, around the globe who were there, the guys who take our material, who would be essentially our future customers, taking our rutile and producing a pigment, uh, a white pigment, uh, TIO2, which is then used by their customers. And really we wanted to figure out where we, stack up and what that entire supply chain looks like you know ultimately where where the guys digging this stuff out of the ground and we wanted to understand you know where does it all end up and it was interesting because um our future customers customers were the likes of apple ikea jaguar land rover you know uh, renault big names who were uh, who were all uh, in attendance at this uh, at this summit um because essentially they all use and need this product um, they all produce goods that need some kind of high quality longevity uh, type of uh, paint or pigment, whether that be paints, plastics, coatings, whatever. And, and, and it was interesting to kind of figure out where we would stack up within that, uh, within that ecosystem. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. Um, the bit I want to kind of get out of today, and I imagine lots of investors want to try and understand, is clearly you're way upstream. You're the guy digging the stuff out of the ground, right? Um, Everyone further downstream from you has their own sets of concerns too, which is, you know, um, do I have, is there enough of this stuff, you know, um, or do I need to do what some of the battery uh, metals guys are doing, which is um, so battery manufacturers and OEMs moving further upstream and trying to take a position in companies to kind of secure that. So what, what did you get to, um, 
What, what did you understand in terms of the supply? Because you, you know, you're saying, okay, we're potentially one of the world's biggest retail producers. What does that do to the market dynamics? Does it, does it um, suppress price growth or is there is the demand outstrip supply still? Look, so, so, so in order to uh, manufacture pigment, uh, TiO2, you, you, you need the raw materials which are either rutile or ilmenite. And rutile is about a half a million tons per annum uh, uh, volume compared to about seven and a half million tons of, of ilmenite and other, uh, other lower grade types of uh, input raw materials. Um, the difference being that rutile is 95, 96% TiO2 already. So it's way, uh, it's more ready to be turned into a final product. Whereas ilmenite is 40 to 60%. Um, and it obviously undergoes a kind of an, quite an energy intensive, carbon intensive process to turn into one of the alternatives to natural rutile, whether that be a synthetic alternative or a, or a titanium slag. Um, it, in both those cases, it still doesn't get up to the 90s type of, uh, um, uh, type of quality that, that our product naturally has. Um, what was interesting was that there was, I think down, well, up the chain towards the miners, there wasn't much, uh, of, there, there wasn't really that knowledge that actually it takes a long time for these mines to come on, online. And there's not much of this, um, you know, whether it's rutile or ilmenite around in the world. And there's only uh, a handful of suppliers out there that are that are producing this stuff and can produce into into the future. And in fact, one of the key uh, messages that I think we got across to some of the players was just the the, the huge supply deficit that rutile itself is facing. Right, natural rutile. Yeah, half a million tons. It was seven hundred thousand tons back in twenty seventeen. In another thirty six months, it's it's meant to be below three hundred thousand tons, and that's just because those rutile mines that were around are slowly depleting or getting harder to mine. The grades becoming lower. Um, you know, the fact that we found the largest rutile deposit in the world and the first real big rutile deposit for the last half a century, kind of. You know, knocks knocks that uh, that that whole supply system around a bit, but even at the levels that we're looking at, uh, you know, potentially producing at two hundred fifty thousand tons, we're nowhere near even twenty seventeen levels of 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 rutile feeding into the market. So, it's not like we'd be glutting the market with any extra supply. So, I don't see us as having any major impact on those future assumptions around around rutile prices. Okay, well, well, that's important. That's important in terms of your your economics, and it's um, it's important in terms of. Well, I, I, I guess do do other do other companies try and get get in on the act? You know, in terms of comp- competition, you know, and you know, ma- managing or trying to take advantage of that kind of supply demand um, gap, as as it were. I mean, do, do, were there other companies there? Or, you know, talking about being able to get in production, whether whether it be early stage or, or not. I mean, how do you sort of see the landscape looking going forward? Oh, look, I, I think the reality is is with with this new uh, wave of uses for TIO two up, uh, upstream, you know, into clean tech and 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 uh, various other uses. Okay, the the, the the I think everyone is feeling the pinch with current energy prices, etc. But 
you know, if we're looking ahead four or five years from now, um, I think the view is that there, there's more than enough room for all, all these players to come online. Obviously, when it comes to Rutile, the big, big USP almost that we have over uh, over alternatives is just our, uh, our ESG credentials and and the lower carbon footprint that uh, that that you know that Rutile has over over Ilmenite derived alternatives. But you say two questions. One, if, you, if, we, if I look back to the sort of lithium space in 2017 or so, before the kind of battery mania um, took over, you know, it, it, it always felt like the, the big um, lithium producers could turn the tap back on and say, therefore, what's the point of even trying to compete? You're saying here, and obviously that, that, that dynamic has changed in the sense that um, the lithium demand is, you know, you know, significantly higher now so that problem goes away but the, the, there's not that problem you're saying there's not that problem here with with retail the demand is significant and therefore your business is safe oh absolutely look the the demand uh equation are you know i talked about the supply side equation being you know kind of 700 odd thousand tons at its peak when the demand was still around two million tons so we're really not even capturing most of the demand side of the equation. Okay, then, then I want to go on to something you just said. You started talking about ESG. It felt like there's an ESG phenomenon at the end of 2020, all through 2021, even the beginning of this year, and then people just got super bored of it. It's like, stop talking about ESG. It, it feels like a gimmick, right? Yeah. Yeah. Was it a big topic of conversation at the conference? Um, it was about 25% of the conference was ESG uh, centric. And I think it's still very much, um, you know, even if even if your lay investor is not thinking about it at the at the C-suite level, I think everyone is still thinking about it. You know, we just uh, we just recently heard about uh, Rio Tinto and their decarbonization program in, in Canada, where they're looking at uh, uh, new technology to uh, to help smelt their ilmenite um, in in Canada and uh, lower their carbon footprint by something like ninety five percent or so. Um, they're also looking to get into the uh, the titanium metal space as well, uh, and they're getting backing from the government of Canada, something to the tune of over half a half a billion dollars over the next eight years in order to get there. So it's really still very much a key focus. Look, and I think everyone was talking about uh, essentially the uses of TiO2, how they're changing, how they're becoming something something more attuned to sustainability and, and environment. And yes, you're right. You know, we were all we were all banging the ESG drum in one one form or another. Um, you know, 24, 12, 24 months ago. I think what's going to happen is you're going to slowly find the um, the companies that have empirical data behind their, their their ESG strategy almost bifurcate from the rest of the market, which is still trying to get there. Um, there were there were plenty of anecdotes about you know pay, there, there was a study in India, for example, where they painted the the, the roofs in a town white using obviously TiO two pigment paint. Um, and that lowered the temperature in in in, in those buildings by ten degrees. In, in you know it was uh, it was quite, quite interesting. So so those anecdotal things are still going on. Obviously, the first thing we did with our Rutar was to just get an independent consultancy here in the UK to look at our life cycle and assess the uh, carbon footprint of our products. 
which um, uh, I, you know I, I've talked about in the past, but we're looking at you know, almost 95% lower uh, carbon footprint than the alternatives in terms of our uh, titanium feedstock production. Right, and I, that does matter. Like, well, I, I had an issue with um, funds rebadging themselves as ESG funds. I mean, the, I think the criteria was always always there in one shape or, or another. Um, but the, 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 com- the companies have a responsibility to, I guess, I'm not sure if you want to go here, but I, I think it's kind of important. Uh, off the back of, I think today we saw some extinction rebellion uh, individual glue themselves to a piece of artwork somewhere in the world to protest against, well, all, all, all things fossil fuel. Um, and I think mining comes under that banner as well broadly so i mean are people right to be concerned about the way that mining companies actually behave and how they go about doing their their business to extract these metals and minerals from the ground look i think i think maybe 10 years ago there was a view that you know if for example when we were in a uh, super cycle everyone wanted to just get the commodities out get them sold you know, maximize shareholder value, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it was par for the course to have, you know, diesel generated power, uh, power, you know, plants on, on, on site. Um, it wasn't the norm to look at hydro or solar. Um, in, in fact, those things hadn't even been thought about or built around mining. I think that's all changed. Um, you know, in our scoping study, for example, that, that came out earlier this year. You know, we've thought about everything from that that power situation, and most of our power will be coming from a solar uh, power plant that that we've uh, we've engaged a Canadian company which has built umpteen of these solar plants around Africa, and a couple of them actually in Malawi as well. Um, we've been talking to them about uh, you know how we how we in, how we plug into a solar array there. Um, Thankfully, we're in a part of the world where, where, where even the grid is run off hydropower, so that helps us with the, the, the renewable side of stuff. And the, I guess the other thing that we, you know, a lot of people talk about the, 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 the E within ESG because it's very easy to link your product to something that could help the environment. But I think a lot of mining companies, and we, we especially have done this in our, in, in our uh, scoping study, has been to go back to well, how can you sustainably mine this stuff in the first place? How can you, how can you make sure that your your carbon footprint is 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 as low as possible when you're getting this stuff out the ground? Because the reality is, we need that stuff. You know, whether it's whether it's um, you know future urbanization, whether it's the clean tech. You know, I I read the other day that in order to meet the demand for electric vehicles by 2040, we need something like 96 new graphite mines coming coming online. Which, of course, I don't know if there are 96 uh, average graphite projects out there. Um, we're obviously blessed with one of the largest uh, flake graphite deposits within our Rutal Rutal project itself, um, which is a huge plus for us. But yeah, I think, look, we, even if I go uh, forwards into thinking about how we mine the project, you know, how we rehabilitate that project, we've, we, we've made sure that we've, um, we've modeled a, uh, an approach that is sustainable. So for example, at Casia, we're looking at progressive rehabilitation, which means 
rather than you know using up land for decades we're looking at progressively uh, rehabilitating that land so we take we take the stuff out uh, you know we take the we take the material out we take the goods that we want the root of the graphite the rest of uh, rest of the material goes back where it was before we basically uh, bring that back to scrubland or farmland or whatever it was previously. And that's like a three to four year process. And it's been done. It just hasn't been done all the time, everywhere, as much as possible. So, so you know, with the size of a project like Casilla, it's just it just makes sense for us to progressively rehabilitate rather than go back in 50, 60, 70 years time and try and refill all those holes we dug up. I th- I, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, the, people kind of forget about the rehabilitation and the, the need for companies to get rehabilitation bonds in place or mediation bonds in place, um, you know, before the start project starts. Um, I, I think for me, these kind of, whether it be Extension Rebellion or, or, or NGOs or wh- whoever who are railing against mining, it, I would like to think in most instances it's about making sure the mining community, natural resource community more broadly, are held accountable, right? Or stop, stop and change and think about the way that they do things. And you guys obviously have, have done that in, in spades, um, pardon the pun, um, <laughs> where, you know, the, the, the putting the land back to what it was before is, is good because the, the, truth, the truth of the matter is we need these metals and minerals out of the grounds to be able to make the phones, the computers, the laptops, the cars, the trains, the buses, whatever it is, the clothes, quite frankly, that we wear. Um, and I hope people, I hope, people understand, hope some of these people understand that, but I think they're absolutely right to make sure natural resource companies do their job and do it in the best possible way. So if, I, I don't know if we want to class it as necessary evil, but um, certainly something that's very necessary for everyday life. Yeah, look, I think one of the key things that you said there was about um, uh, about reporting your your ESG credentials almost, and we, we've done it in whatever sense you'd expect a mining company at our stage uh, of its life to to do through a through a life cycle assessment. But yeah, I can see I can see as we progress, I can see the sector um, really getting a standardized approach to its to its ESG reporting and really focusing on all those three as i said the environment the social and the go- and the, and the governance side of stuff um because it's very easy to do the environmental in a world where everything is focused on decarbonization it's a, it's a little harder to make sure you're ticking ticking all the boxes across the uh, across the board Okay, one last question, which is, you, you, we know you went in there to try and find out how, how do you value or how do you say, do you know what, that was a good use of money, it was a good use of time, our shareholders' money, I may add, um, to go to a conference like this. Did you get what you wanted out of it? Yeah, I think what was interesting was one of the speakers talked about um, the upstream supply chain, where the ultimate raw material comes from, and... Um, and I think it was uh, it was uh, news to a lot of the downstream players that actually you know mines t- uh, titanium dioxide or rutile or ilmenite mines take something like on average fifteen years from exploration into into uh, production. Um, you know they almost thought like you could turn the tap on and this stuff will flow and we'll, it, it will it, it will always be available. Um, 
and it was useful for us to actually let people know a there hasn't been a rutile discovery for the last uh, as big as ours for the last 50 years and b actually even though it takes 15 years for an average company we really only started to discover what we had towards the beginning of 2019 we're now at the, towards the end of 2022 and we've already got a scoping study done uh, we're, we're figuring out how big this thing could be, but even on the basis of a scoping study, we know that there is potential for economic development of this mine. And hopefully by mid-year next year, we'll have a PFS out and that will obviously flow into a, into a bankable feasibility study. But we're looking at, and if we're looking at our timeline and thinking production in 2026, that's seven, eight years versus a, an average of 15. So I think we've done pretty well.